You know, sometimes it's the smallest, most unexpected things that set off a chain of events. The cliche of the flap of the butterfly wings and the butterfly effect. There actually is a version of that in this story. This story that leads to these violent events on January 6th with President Trump turning on his vice president with a mob of Trump supporters marching up to the Capitol chanting, Hang Mike Pence. That thing here was a TV commercial. The end is coming, Donald. Even Mike Pence knows. It was a TV ad that probably none of you listening to this podcast even saw. And the reason probably none of you saw this ad was because it was only shown in the DC market on Fox News. It was booked for an audience of one with a clear goal to get inside Donald Trump's head and to poison his relationship with Mike Pence. And it worked. On January 6th, Mike Pence will put the nail in your political coffin when he presides over the Senate vote to prove Joe Biden won. It's over. I wanted to understand how one TV ad could set off a chain of events that would ultimately demolish President Trump's most valuable relationship. For this story, like all the stories in this series, I spoke to a range of senior White House and Trump administration officials, senior campaign officials, and sources close to the president. They spoke to me on the basis of what we call deep background, which means I can use the information but not say where it came from. I'm Jonathan Swan. This is How It Happened, Trump's Last Stand. Part four, the point of no return. It's early December. Attorney General Bill Barr's resignation is all but a foregone conclusion. Trump's fabulous conspiracist lawyers are running out of stories to tell him about how he can overturn the election. Trump announces on Twitter that his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has tested positive for COVID. It's in this state of mind that Donald Trump, while watching his favorite shows on Fox News, sees this ad from the Lincoln Project. Their ads are designed to mess with Trump's mind. When Mike Pence is running away from you, you know it's over. It was a beautiful moment of, of, of political fuckery. We're delighted to apparently to have done a lot to poison their relationships. It just, you know, fills us with the type of joy that's hard to find in the, in the early days of the new year. <laughs> The Lincoln Project is a collection of former Republican operatives who've dedicated their life in the past few years to destroying Donald Trump. My name is Steve Schmidt. My name is Rick Wilson, and I'm a fugitive from justice. <laughs> Steve and Rick came up with the idea for this ad on one of their daily conference calls. Steve points out on his call one day, he says, there's no way Trump knows what Pence is going to do on the 6th. There's no way he understands that. You know, I just said, I said, there's zero chance, like, like fucking zero. Like, I bet my legs on it, right? That Trump has no idea that, like, Pence presides over the Congress. <laughs> we were suddenly like, of course he doesn't. And so we turned it into something that, that drove a massive wedge that is playing out to this very moment between Trump and Pence 
Trump wasn't even aware at this point, before he saw that ad, that the vice president played this ceremonial role in certifying the election result. So he was actually educated on the constitutional process by this crude Lincoln Project ad. We realized Trump would not understand what was about to happen constitutionally or legally. But when we filled in that space in his head, we knew it would divide this administration at the end in a profound way. In his private meetings with Pence, he begins bullying Pence on this question. Trump has a clear idea of what he wants Pence to do. He wants Pence to refuse to certify the election, to say that this was a fraudulent election. He also tells Pence he wants him to send cease and desist letters to the Lincoln Project. Pence is getting more and more uncomfortable. He has walked this tightrope with Donald Trump for four years. You know, he's endured any number of catastrophes. Mike Pence is 100%. Not even a doubt about it in my mind. He's been a trooper. He's been completely loyal to Trump through Charlottesville, through family separation, through the Helsinki press conference when Donald Trump stood next to Vladimir Putin and endorsed Putin over the U.S. intelligence community. All of this Pence survives. There is no rear view mirror for President Donald Trump. It's all out the windshield. It's all going forward. And he's only got a couple of weeks left. And at this last hurdle, of course, because it's Donald Trump, he gets pushed off the tightrope. This became an obsession in Trump's mind, getting his vice president, Mike Pence, to change reality in the Senate. The vice president was very uncomfortable with this request. He knew immediately that it was completely untethered from the law and his constitutional responsibilities. But he tells the president, look, I'll get my general counsel, Greg Jacob, to look into it. This story is hurtling towards a confrontation between Trump and Pence. That confrontation might have happened even sooner, but the president had been distracted. So at the same time that Trump is getting increasingly desperate about overturning the election, Top Republicans, including Senate leadership, are desperately trying to persuade him to get focused on what's actually achievable and more important, which is saving the Republican control of the Senate. There's a huge election in Georgia on January 5th, the runoff elections there that will decide control of the Senate. But Trump doesn't care. He's not thinking about Georgia. He's thinking about himself. And there is a real sort of tug of war behind the scenes to try and persuade Donald Trump, the most popular figure in the Republican Party, to rally for Senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. But before Trump leaves for that rally, this is the early evening of January 4th, he, he takes one last stab at changing the vice president's mind. He wheels in a fringe attorney, John Eastman. He's one of the only lawyers in the country that would deign to publicly claim that the vice president had the power to derail the electoral college certification process. But here he is, John Eastman, seated in front of Trump across the resolute desk, sitting alongside the vice president, Mike Pence, and several other senior officials, including Pence's general counsel, Greg Jacob. 
This is one of the most bizarre meetings in the Oval Office in this period, and that's saying something. At the same time this conversation is happening, outside on the South Lawn, Marine One was humming, waiting to take the president to Joint Base Andrews for his flight to Georgia to rally ahead of the runoff election. You have the Vice President of the United States patiently and deliberately cross-examining this attorney, John Eastman, about this bizarre legal theory, which effectively argues that the vice president had the unilateral authority to send electors back to the state legislatures if they believed there was an unconstitutional fraud. One bizarre example cited was from 1801, when Thomas Jefferson had a defective certificate from Georgia. But there was a slight problem. Jefferson never changed Georgia's vote. Even so, they were saying, if Thomas Jefferson can do it, so can Mike Pence, which made no sense. This was complete bunk in Team Pence's firm view. And there was 150 years of legal precedent to say so. Pence knows this is nonsense. Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, knows this is nonsense. And most importantly, because he's the person who actually did the legal research, Pence's general counsel, Greg Jacob, knows this is nonsense. But here's the President of the United States saying from his seat behind the Resolute desk, you know, Mike, he's a really respected constitutional lawyer. You should really hear him out. Mr. President, do you plan to attend the inauguration? Trump gets on the helicopter en route to the plane that will head to Georgia. This is ostensibly to campaign for the re-elections of the state's two Republican senators. But really, he's obsessing over Pence. These two men, joined at the hip for the last four years, are now on two separate paths. In a moment, we head to Georgia. We're back, and we're on Air Force One with a cast of characters. The President's joined on this final flight to Georgia. He's got the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who years ago spoke forcefully against Donald Trump, but then became one of his most loyal supporters and friends in the Senate. You've got the Club for Growth President David McIntosh, who, fitting the same pattern, his organization was pretty anti-Trump back in the day, but then became a major supporter. And then you've got this other person on the flight, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, also known as the QAnon supporter. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the woman who blamed Jewish space lasers. I'm not kidding here. Jewish space lasers for starting fires in California. So Trump is doing what he always does on these Air Force One flights. He's watching Fox News. This time it was on silent. And he's watching his supporters filing into his rally. His spirits briefly lift up. And then he sees Brad Raffensperger appear on the television. This was just one day after the story broke of Trump's 
bullying phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, first obtained by the Washington Post. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. And Trump's mood immediately turns back in a dark direction. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. He growls, what a horrible, incompetent guy. So in the conference room on Air Force One, Lindsey Graham and David McIntosh and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're sitting round in brown leather chairs around this long table. They're eating quinoa salad with roasted chicken, and the waiters bring in macaroons. Lindsey Graham asked instead for his standing dessert order while flying on Air Force One, strawberries and cream. As they're sitting around the table, McIntosh pleads with Trump to offer a full-throated endorsement of Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Everyone knows, he says to Trump, that if they win, you'll get the credit for putting them over the top. He tells Trump that it'll show that in an election where the Democrats don't cheat, Republicans win. Trump's in a foul mood. He's not buying this. And he says, no, they won't, David. They'll blame me if we lose. But if we win... They won't give me the credit. Lindsey Graham sees that McIntosh's tactics aren't working, so he tries another tactic, and he says, you know, this is about your legacy, Mr. President. We've got to win these two Senate seats so that the Democrats can't unwind your legacy on everything from, you know, the courts to economic policies to, to your work with China. I mean, again, this is not where Trump's head was at. Lindsey Graham and McIntosh are trying to manipulate him, trying to get Trump into a positive headspace so that he can give this big endorsement and hopefully save the Senate for Republicans. And then there's this really interesting moment where Donald Trump takes David McIntosh into his private cabin. Most people who fly on Air Force One don't migrate up to Trump's private cabin. But McIntosh goes in there and he asks Trump for an autograph for his personal trainer And the president in this moment, actually a rare moment of vulnerability for Trump, he asks McIntosh what McIntosh thinks his odds are of overturning the election, of winning at this point. And McIntosh says, it doesn't look great, sir. And Trump replies, yeah, that's probably right. Trump gets off Air Force One and goes straight to the rally. Once the rally kicks off in Georgia, it's clear to anyone watching, the fate of the Republican Senate is not really what's motivating Donald Trump. He's thinking about January the 6th. Trump steps on stage. Hello, Georgia, by the way. He takes it in, he soaks it in. That was a rigged election. And then he introduces Kelly Leffler. I have an announcement, Georgia. On January 6th, I will object to the Electoral College vote. That's right. That's right. So this was the price of Trump's full-throated endorsement. It was effectively an extortion. Kelly Leffler was, before all of this, seen as a figure of the Republican establishment. She's a wealthy woman from Atlanta. She's not exactly 
you know, a, a member of the Trump MAGA base. But what happened to Leffler is what happens to the vast, vast majority of elected Republicans in this era. They ultimately have to bow to Donald Trump. Getting Leffler to publicly declare that she'll vote to object to the election, that was good, Trump liked that, but it wasn't enough. He turns up the heat on Pence in his own remarks on stage shortly after. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Just consider what's happening here. If you've never been to a Trump rally, let me tell you, I've covered politics in two countries. The bond that Donald Trump has with his audience is like nothing I've ever seen before in politics. Their attachment to him is intense. And these rallies are a mix between almost a religious event and a rock concert. I've been to them since 2015. There's a call and response. It's visceral. All he would need to do is say the name Hillary Clinton and the crowd would just start chanting, lock her up. It would become this really powerful, overwhelming emotion rolling through the crowd. I remember being in a barn in Virginia towards the end of the 16 campaign. It was one of those days where the president was doing like seven or eight rallies a day. This was late at night. There was a sense of anticipation. Trump was running late. And I remember looking over and there was this woman next to me and she had her toddler that she was sort of bouncing up in front of her, looking her toddler in the eyes. And she was just saying, lock her up, lock her up. Put that into this context. You have Trump, this figure who has, you know, who has this incredible power, which he knows. He knows very well the power that he has over his base. And he is standing up before this crowd and basically hinting to them, not even hinting, telling them outright this lie that Mike Pence has the power to overturn this election and deliver the victory to Donald Trump. What do you think that does to a supporter who believes every word Donald Trump says, who hangs off his every word, who has this intense emotional attachment to Donald Trump. What do you think that creates? And voter ID, we want voter ID. Is that so much to add? There's no way we lost Georgia, there's no way. The rigged, that was a rigged election. How about the press? Look at them all back there, look at all of them. How about the press? It's a lot of press. So two days later, it's January 6th, Republicans wake across Washington to terrible news. They've already lost one of the Georgia Senate races, Kelly Leffler, she's gone. The other race between John Ossoff and Senator David Perdue is still too close to call. The prognosticators are saying that the other seat is going to the Democrats too. This is the worst possible outcome for Republicans. They're going to lose control of the United States Senate. Trump was desperate. Trump calls Pence on the morning of January 6th. He tries one last time to manipulate his vice president. Trump knew deep down at this point that Pence wasn't going to waver. He was throwing one last plate of spaghetti at the wall, but he knew it was over. After the phone call, Mike Pence gets into his chauffeur-driven car to head to the Capitol. 
to certify Joe Biden's victory. At that exact same moment, the split screen, Donald Trump steps on stage for his fateful rally at the Ellipse. Next time, I'll take you inside the West Wing and the US Capitol on January 6th. Don't forget to subscribe to our daily news podcasts, Axios Today and Axios Recap. This episode was produced by my fabulous team, Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, and Alice Wilder. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer. Additional reporting and fact-checking by Zach Basu. Margaret Talev is Managing Editor of Politics. Sarah Kehalani Gu is Axios's Executive Editor. Mixing by Alex Sugiyora. And theme music by Michael Hanf. Special thanks to Carol Wu, Dan Primack, Chen Gao, Nyla Boudou, Tim Shovers, and Axios co-founders, Roy Schwartz, Jim Vanderhei, and Mike Allen. I'm Jonathan Swan. We'll be back next week.